It's a beautiful day and a fine time for healing. Podcast host Randy Fine, a narcissistic abuse expert and the author of the groundbreaking book Close Encounters of the Worst Kind and the captivating memoir Cliff Edge Road, invites you into her sanctuary, a place where your physical, emotional, and spiritual well-being are all that matter. So put your feet up, relax, and enjoy today's show. And now, here's Randy. Good morning. Thank you for tuning in to listen to A Fine Time for Healing. I am your show host, Randy Fine. And today's special guest, Dr. Tiffany Jana, is diversity, equity, and inclusion thought is a diversity, equity, and inclusion thought leader. I'm, I'm, I had this um, for two people because this book is written by two, so I'm going to change the way I'm going to say this. But um, right, but Dr. Tiffany Jana is with us today, and her new book that she wrote with co-author Dr. Michael Barron, which is called Subtle Acts of Exclusion, How to Understand, Identify, and Stop Micro microaggressions reframes the concept of microaggressions in order to gain some traction on a problem that has not seen much progress in decades. Microaggressions, which um, Dr. Jana is going to explain to us, are ways that people unintentionally exclude and alienate others. Even though they may be unintentional, they do inflict harm. Dr. Tiffany Jana is the CEO of TMI Portfolio, a collection of companies working to advance inclusive workplaces. TMI Consulting, a TMI Portfolio company, is a 2018 Best for the World B Corporation. Dr. Jana is also the co-author of Overcoming Bias and the second edition of the B Corp handbook. This is such an interesting topic and one I don't know how many of us have really considered. So this is going to be mind-expanding today. Um, Let me bring our guest on and we'll get started. Good morning, Dr. Jana. Welcome. Good morning. Thank you so much for having me. (laughs) It's my pleasure. Um, So I guess we should really start with since that word microaggressions, uh, most people aren't familiar with what that word means. So um, why don't you explain that to us? So microaggressions, like you said in the introduction, they are the behaviors or the words, the verbiage that people use that inadvertently cause harm. So it's ways that we exclude, exclude each other. And the reason we called the book Subtle Acts of Exclusion is because we're actually trying to re- rebrand that term microaggressions. As soon as you hear it, it's kind of like when you call someone a racist, then nobody, nobody ever says, oh, tell me more about my racism. I want to learn and grow from this place. So we are rebranding microaggressions as SAE for short, subtle acts of exclusion, because they are that. They're subtle. They're the kinds of things that might fly under the radar. But when you're on the receiving end of one of these, you know, small, seemingly, seemingly insignificant um, acts or, or, or words, 
uh, when you're on the receiving end, you tend to receive them over and over again. And so uh, an example that, you know, the example that you might uh, be able to relate to is as, as a woman, for instance, if you are in a professional setting, it is not uncommon when people come together to meet that uh, if it's time for note taking, someone will look to the nearest female and just say, hey, will you go ahead and take notes for us, Catherine? Or, hey, could you go get us a cup of coffee? As if it is just inherent for the nurturing female tendency uh, to want to not only volunteer, but be voluntold to, to, to commit these more kind of servile acts. That is an assumption, and that is a microaggression, particularly when, when we are on the receiving end of that over and over again. And you use the example in the very um, beginning of your book that um, <clears throat> there was a gentleman that was speaking, and he was Af- African-American, <clears throat> very educated. And um, <clears throat> when he finished, one of the women in the audience um, commented that he sounded so articulate, and her intention was, to compliment him on his speech. But um, because he was an African-American man with that kind of background, and people, I guess people don't, uh, many people don't think that an African-American man would be articulate, it was sort of um, a microaggression, right? Indeed, indeed. So this is a very common one that people of color are very familiar with, and and particularly for white people, when it's the first time they're hearing about it or reading about it, it's very confusing. They're like, what do you mean? Like, calling someone articulate is a really nice thing to do. That is clearly a compliment. Well, when when an intelligent, accomplished, professional person of color hears that over and over again, what the, the subtle act of exclusion is that, like you said, they are on some level what you're actually saying is, wow, I didn't expect for you to be able to speak that way. Of course I'm an articulate speaker. I'm a professional speaker. I'm a professional person. I hold many degrees. I was, I was invited and paid to stand up in front of this group and present. Why would I not be articulate? And, and we, we saw that example with uh, Barack Obama. Barack Obama was referred to as articulate fairly frequently, but articulate is not the compliment that one would confer onto a a white male president, for instance, right? You know, if you hear a white CEO of a company speaking, you're not going to say, oh, wow, he's so articulate. No, it's just a given. You expect someone of that stature to be able to communicate well. Right. And so I I think – my listeners, and I, and I know you brought this up in the book, my listeners are probably saying, oh, my gosh, do we have to be that careful with what we say? I mean, you know, why are people so sensitive? So what are we trying to tell the listeners today? What are we trying to, to explain to them? Well, it's an exciting opportunity to be on this show because you are focused on the mental and the emotional and the spiritual well-being of people. And while no, what we don't want to hypersensitize people so much that they just feel like they can't say anything, they can't do anything. The idea is that we are living in the most inclusive, the most diverse times we've ever had. There are more different kinds of people and experiences around us than ever. And we're no longer expecting everyone to fit into little cookie cutter molds. 
we actually want to encourage people to be their individual selves, to bring their cultures, you know, to the forefront, to be proud of their various identities, whether they're gay or straight or, or religious or not, or people of color or international. We want those aspects of people to no longer have to be hidden in shame because when we were trying to kind of get people to conform to a, you know, a unified standard or a, you know, default white supremacist standard, that wasn't very inclusive. So all we're saying is that if we're trying to make people feel healthy and whole and nurture a sense of belonging in our various environments. So my work centers on the workplace, right? That's the, that's the laboratory in which I've done, you know, decades and decades of research. So whether it's your, your workplace or just in your life, if you're trying to create a space around you that communicates, I value you as an individual. I value your presence. I value your experiences, and I want you to feel safe in my presence. Then what we have to understand is that humans, as humans living in a more diversified world, we actually do have an obligation to increase our cultural fluency just a little bit, right? It's, it's, it is kind of selfish and self-centered and narcissistic to believe that we can just exist the way we've always existed, believe what we've always believed, and, and, and keep our aperture narrow and never really allow any new ideas or new experiences or new perspectives to enter therein. If we're really going to create space and loving embrace of humanity and the people around us, then we have to understand a little bit how our actions and words impact people. And like, look, I'm a diversity expert. I've written, I've, I've, at this point, I'm, I'm on my seventh book. This was my fourth book, right? And I've written all of these books and spent an inordinate amount of time researching this. I mess up all the time. What we have to do is have grace for ourselves and for others and understand that we will sometimes not get it right. But that's not a reason to give up, and that's not a reason to say, oh, this is stupid. I'm just going to discard this and just keep going about my life. No. When you realize that you've harmed a human being and they're communicating to you in some way that what you've said or done, you know, has impacted them in a negative way, then all we need to do is be humble enough to say, you know what, I'm really sorry. I, I didn't, you know, I didn't mean it in that way. Um, but I also didn't, didn't mean to cause you harm, but I'm willing to acknowledge that it did. And I will, you know, try to learn and grow from this place and do better next time. Mm, great advice. Yeah, I like, I like the idea. You know, I like what you just said about um, expanding our perspectives because um, so many of us are locked into our perspective and thinking that everyone thinks the way we do. And mm -hmm. that is absolutely not true. There's a passage in your book that I wanted to read. I really liked it. Um, you say, I believe strongly that true freedom lies in the ability to embrace who you are without fear, to shine your light and be seen and appreciated without the exhaustion of having to justify your very existence. I do pray that my experiences, identities, and perspectives help you on your journey to becoming a more intentionally inclusive ally who cultivates a sense of belonging for all people. That is just beautiful. I, I love the way you oh. wrote that. <laughs> Thank you. Yes, for me, you know, I feel like I feel like working in this space of justice, equity, diversity, and inclusion is, you know, about the only thing I could have done because I personally represent five different intersectional marginalized identities. So, you know, I'm a person of color. I'm a gender nonconforming person. I identify as uh, non-binary. 
I am part of the LGBTQ community. Um, English is not my first language, and I have invisible disabilities. And so this idea of understanding the perspective of the people on the margins is, is very, you know, it's very inherent to me. It's very native to me. And at the same time, I love being a bridge between the worlds of those who are just trying to get on with their lives and do their business and do their thing um, and the folks who feel like no space is really ever made for me because while I hold five marginalized identities, I'm also extraordinarily privileged. I do have a doctorate, doctorate degree and a master's degree. I have a great education. You know, I was raised by two doctors. I've seen most of the world. I only have one continent left. 2020 was supposed to be wow. the year of Antarctica, but, but that's oh not going to happen. So, <laughs> so you know, it, it's holding this privilege in tension with holding the marginalized identities. I'm able to hopefully communicate with people in a way that's really approachable that, you know, it's okay. You know, you don't, you don't have to feel guilty about who you are. While we simultaneously want folks who feel less seen to become more visible, I also want people who are in the majority, the people who are, you know, who, who may, may be seen as traditionally more privileged to also feel safe to be who they are and feel welcomed into the conversation because it's not a diversity conversation if all of us don't have a welcomed voice to participate in that space. It's, if it's just a bunch of marginalized people or historically underrepresented or underappreciated people having a conversation with each other, that's not an inclusive conversation. So what we want to do is make space for everyone to understand that we're not complete unless every single one of us is given full permission to shine their light into the communal space. Love it. <laughs> I absolutely love it. You know, I work with um, mainly narcissistic abused victims uh, and survivors <laughs> and, mm-hmm. uh, who have been told that their identity does not matter. It's been mm-hmm. sort of the, the light of their identity has been snuffed out. And mm-hmm. um, they find it very difficult to embrace who they are. They think they're very mm-hmm. odd, you know. And um, I try to give people the freedom to say, I, you know, whoever you are, whatever you are, you know, it's cool, it's you. It's okay, um, yeah. So I love, yeah, I love this, um, I love this topic. So you talk yeah. about well, in the book, I, think, oh, I'm sorry, go ahead. Oh no! I was going to say I have survived. Uh, I've survived one of those relationships before, um, and and had had my light snuffed out before I embarked on this uh, career, which is part of the reason that it is so incredibly deeply personal to not only make sure that I am, you know, perpetually a beacon of light and hope because it was also domestic violence was part of that as well. Um, you know, I, I always want to be a beacon of hope, and and, and in this moment where we're still. Uh, you know, under lockdown and the pandemic, my heart really goes out to, you know, the women and children and sometimes men who find themselves, you know, both in narcissistic and emotionally and physically abusive spaces that they're trapped in during lockdown. So I just want to always like to just take a moment to say, you know, the the, the hotlines that exist for for child abuse and domestic violence um, are active and support is available during this time as well. But part of why I do this work is because I've been on the flip side. The extreme version of marginalization is one where you're completely shut down and have no voice. And we want to make sure that we're not, you know, that we're not creating the small infraction of further silencing people when we're trying our best to be good people. That's why microaggressions are such a little pernicious thing because 
most of us identify as good people. We think that we're good people. We want to be good people. And so the assertion that we might have caused someone harm through our actions or words, we take that really personally because it's like, no, 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 no. I'm a thoughtful person, right? You know, I right. marched during civil rights or whatever, right? And, and, right. and what, what we need people to understand is it's not an either or, right? You can have a, you know, like you can, you can, act, you can hold a, a racist idea or a sexist thought or, or, or say something like, you know, if you are, uh, you know, walking across the other side of the street when you see an Asian person because you're assuming that all Asian people are the carriers of coronavirus, like that's a microaggression. <laughs> Right. So so you can be a good person and still be subject to human foibles. So recognizing that it's not either or we can all sometimes, you know, not not show up as our best. And it's the intentionality that is that we want to raise people's awareness to you. you, We can no longer just kind of go on autopilot and think that we're going to be thoughtful and amazing people. No, if you're on autopilot, you're more likely to cause harm. So we want to be thoughtful and intentional with our words. And when we mess up. We want to be humble and, you know, and contrite and say, you know what, I'm, I, I'm really sorry that I, that, I, that I did that. I see what you mean, and I will do better next time. And what if it's done to us or what if we're feeling this? Um, how do we express ourselves in a way that makes us, you know, where people don't label us, oh, that person mm-hmm. is just so, so oversensitive? How do we confront somebody or, or, or yeah. you know what I'm saying? How do we do that? Hold them accountable. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, first of all, I would say that this is, this is one of the wonderful places where allies and co-conspirators come in. We hear a lot of talk about cultural allies. If you are, the first thing is, you know, if, you, if there's somebody in your proximity who you trust and you know and you're able to, um, you know, to, to, to leverage somebody else's power and voice, because in the moment when you have been offended, you, you drop into that, you know, into that primitive brain and you're not, you're not really able to be thoughtful and rational and not emotional in those moments. So it's important for us as, again, people who identify as good people, when we see that happen in the meeting and we see that Catherine has been asked to go get the coffee for someone who's not Catherine to say, oh, you know, hey, you know, somebody else wanted, somebody actually want to volunteer, we shouldn't assume that Catherine wants to go and get the coffee. Um, Or if you're a man and you want to be an ally, you say, no, you know what, I'll go get the coffee, Catherine, have a seat, right? So to stand up for, for someone else, you do not have to be the person who was offended to stand up. And if, if we had more people who could stand up on behalf of our fellow humans, it would be, we'd be a much stronger society. So first thing, either be an ally or a co-conspirator or enlist one. Identif- identify someone and just say, hey, you know what, Joe, I'm, you know, I'm a little bit um, triggered at the moment. And, um, you know, so if you could just have my back for a second, I'm just going to go to the, to, the, to the restroom and freshen up because I need, a, I need a minute. And then maybe Joe can say something for you. If you are in a position where you have to do it yourself, Remember that any time that you are, you know, kind of triggered in that emotional space that you're dropping, you know, into that limbic brain and you are not able to really be rational and thoughtful. So taking the 10 deep breaths, you know, going for a short walk, taking, getting space between the incident and you, first of all, is a great idea so that you can get back into your rational mind. And then, and then, you know, one, 
choosing your battles is important, right? So if it's somebody that you're never going to see again or, if, you know, the moment passes or whatever, then, you know, getting that emotional support from somebody else, talking to someone that you trust who can validate you and your experience so that you don't have to feel like a crazy person who feels offended over nothing. If you're actually confronting the person, then it is wise to remember that intent and impact are unrelated things, right? So if, you, if you're assuming good intent and you think and you go ahead and just, just assume that this person did not set out to cause harm uh, on purpose and that, you know, what you want to do is you want to call them in, not call them out, right? So if you're just like, hey, you know, you called me articulate and I'm a black person, what's wrong with you? Like, why would you do that? Clearly you're not going to make friends and that person is not going to grow. But if you can go to them and you can say, and I've had to do this many times because I'm a professional speaker, I'm a person of color, and people have called me articulate to my face. Um, wow. And so I would say, you know, I would say, listen, you know, I know we don't know each other very well, um, you know, but there is a, you know, there's a social construct that exists around this idea of calling a black person articulate. I, I wouldn't recommend that you continue using that particular word with people of color because it is often seen as offensive. And I will, you know, I'll let myself off the hook and you can, you know, you have to go with your level of sort of honesty and transparency and how well you know this person. If it's a person I know really well, then I would say, look, you know, we go way back and I need you to know, like, you, you really can't say that. And here's why. So it's a uh, ouch then educate. It's this is actually harmful, and I know that you know me and you wouldn't mean to cause me harm. Here's why this is problematic. With someone you don't know, you can say something like, you know, I'm, I'm not personally offended because I'm aware of this construct, but I do feel like that it's important to not to let you move forward in your life unaware of this because I'm pretty sure that you didn't mean to cause harm. Um, and be as stoic as you can about it. Uh, but it's, it's tricky. It's tricky because not all of us are inclined to address things head on in that manner. Right. And it, it it's very tricky because terms keep changing, politically correct terms mm-hmm. keep changing. Um, you know, one that I particularly um, have sometimes have difficulty with is those who have disabilities. Like, I don't mm-hmm. really know what to say, um, mm-hmm. the best way to say it, you know. And so, mm-hmm. um, you know, I might avoid that completely but what is a good way to i mean what do we what are the mistakes that we make with um people who are physically disabled uh so the most common thing we do is that we we refer to the person as a as the disability right so we privilege the, the 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 disability the condition the circumstances under which they are living or we we privilege their special needs rather than putting the focus on the person so when we say oh yeah you know that that autistic student that Susan works with no 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 that is a student with autism right? It's not an autistic student, right? You're not your disability. Um, It's not that diabetic girl. It's the person with diabetes, the person living with diabetes. So you always use, um, you always put the, the, the human being first and whatever their special circumstance, you put that after and you, you label that as something that they live with versus something that they are. That they are. Wow. That's true. That's great. That really does um, clear it up. That really does make it, and that and that's a good rule for everything that we say. Exactly. To, to exactly. look at the person first, right? Mm-hmm. Um, you have you have some guidelines for um, for speaking, and the first one. 
Let's see. Oh, okay, this is for speaking up as the subject or observer. So um, other than that tip, which I think is a pretty good one um, and does encompass all of this, what else do we want to think about before we speak? Yeah, so, again, it's it's so incredibly challenging to, um, you know, to, to self-regulate. So the first thing I would say is, you know, just not to – not to assume that your default is, you know, is the only way, right? So the, the, uh, the, there is a, there's an intersection between our personal biases, whether conscious or unconscious, and where the microaggressions tend to show up. And so all work related to diversity, equity, and inclusion must necessarily begin with the individual. So the introspective work of mining your own hard drive for the messages that you may have received, you know, from your clergy or your parents or your teachers or your well-intentioned friends. We've been receiving messages from the media and a multitude of places our entire lives, and oftentimes those messages are designed to, you know, help us be safe and live good lives and be informed. But we don't actually spend a lot of time interrogating those messages that we have internalized. And so if you're able to start doing that and just thinking about, you know, what have I been told about black people? What are the messages that I have heard or believe about women, about LGBT people? So, you know, one of the ways that you can do it is you can, you know, make a list of different, you know, marginalized identities on one side of a piece of paper and then on the, on the, on the right side just behind it, just very quickly write the first thing that comes to mind, anything you've seen, heard, or read about that group of people, and you'll begin to know where your unconscious biases might lie. So if you're getting ready to have a conversation or an interaction with someone who represents an identity about which either our society has a bias, because we tend to replicate our societal biases whether we realize it or not, so whether it's our society's biases or biases that we might suspect that we have, it's good for us to interrogate our own intentions and think about, you know, what are the stereotypes or assumptions that I have about this group, right? Am I about to articulate something based on a stereotype or my own assumption? Um, you know, we get a lot of people who, you know, when they see folks, um, you know, they, they exoticize the differences that people have, you know, so they want to touch the black woman's beautiful puffy afro or ask a bunch of questions about her hair. And it's important to ask yourself in these moments where you're moving across culture, you know, what is your actual intention in these spaces? Are you, are you being unnecessarily intrusive um, or are you actually trying to build an authentic relationship? Because that's one of the questions we get very often is, well, how do I, I'm scared to talk to people of color. I'm scared to talk to, you know, people who are transgender because I, I'm scared I'm going to mess up. And so, you know, how do I do that? Well, the nonverbal cues, the intentions of your heart are far more easily read than we give ourselves credit, right? It's not just the words that come out of your mouth. Your intentions and your energy actually is projected, and human beings are animals. And we are incredibly adept at reading those nonverbal cues. So if you're just a curious looky-loo and you are looking at me as a curiosity, that, whatever you say is going to come across as invasive. And my stance and my response is going to be a little bit more guarded. Whereas if you are looking to build a relationship with me and you're genuinely interested in my experience and you're genuinely interested in my perspective, that will also come across. And so any mistake that's made in that space, 
will be received with much more grace because your intention is not nearly as concealed as you might think it is. Mm. This is really great for <clears throat> for communities that are targeted this way um, to you know for you to be doing this to make it a little easier because I think you know if you're if you're in a community that is um, stereotyped by so many people, you tend to be uh, on guard. You tend to be, because you hear it so mm-hmm. often, right? I mean, I, yeah. I've i never experienced that, but, you know, I am I definitely believe we are all one, um, and mm-hmm. I don't really judge anybody as anything, as far as I know. Mm-hmm. <laughs> mm-hmm. But I, but how, what does it feel like to... To have to live many years being mm-hmm. on guard that people are going to say things like that. It's awful. It's positively awful. Um, and there's actually this, there's a wonderful concept. It's not a wonderful concept. I'm just, I'm just, I just get very excited when experiences and, and, and intellectual ideas have words <laughs> and labels. Um, right. Attributional ambiguity is one that I absolutely love. And attributional ambiguity is, it is the it is the ambiguity that comes with or the uncertainty that comes with not knowing whether something that has just happened to you it happened because of your marginalized identity because of racism sexism homophobia or just because bad things happen right uh, you don't know why these things happen and then they happen over and over again and here's the crazy link between what's happening right now and this crazy little thing called microaggression Attributional ambiguity and the, the stress and pressure associated with existing within a marginalized or underappreciated context, it is so stressful that it exacerbates um, medical conditions. Like we, ha- we, we, we have tons of research that can tie the stress and pressure of racism, sexism, homophobia to our actual physical well-being, to our emotional well-being. And when we talk about COVID-19 and the coronavirus, why are black people dying at seven times the rate of white people? It can be attributed to our health disparities, right? It can be attributed back to racism, sexism, all of the things that cause people to be pushed to the margins. That, that, that aggravates your existing, um, you know, your diabetes, your hypertension, your autoimmune disorders. And so these, these things, well, if you take the one comment in isolation and the fact that you crossed the street prematurely when you saw a black man or an Asian person because you thought they had coronavirus, it might seem insignificant in, in that one instance. But when you stack these things on top of each other and these things become the norm for how we treat our fellow humans, we actually can tie this stuff back to deadly consequences. Health disparities kill. Racism kills. Homophobia kills. Now, yes, it kills in the, you know, if you're talking about actual hate, hate crimes and things like that. But the social and emotional toll that is taken on the actual physical body is one that can be traced to how we treat each other. That's amazing. I mean, our bodies do take on all the stress um, mm-hmm. of our minds, and we do, you know, and when people say to me, um, you know, uh, well, I don't really, you know, it, it's it's so hard to get out of my relationship with my abuser, and mm-hmm. it's better to stick with what I know than what I don't know, and I always mm-hmm. say, well, you know, 
you are going to, you can't not internalize that. And you are mm-hmm. going to end up very ill if you stay there. And then you're going to be at more at the mercy of your abuser. We have to understand mm-hmm. that the way our mind, you know, the stress that we put ourselves through is going to come out in physical, mm-hmm. um, you know, ways. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I had, you know, it's interesting. I had, um, I guess it was a couple of months ago, I had on a woman who had written a book about um, her transgender um, daughter, well, son now. And Mm -hmm. I just, you know, I just loved it. I love bringing up that topic because I think that people really need to understand um, how normal (laughs) it is for those who are going through Mm -hmm. this. Anyway, Mm -hmm. um, we had a caller, and I thought, oh, this is interesting. Well, the caller was a heckler. And I don't know what he said, but then he started laughing maniacally, and I had to cut him off, and I felt so bad. But she said, you know what? I'm used to this. I'm used to this. Mm -hmm. Used to the judgment. Mm -hmm. Yep. No, that it becomes, you know, it becomes normalized, and this is... (laughs) Like, I love the workplace as a laboratory because it's the biggest learning lab that we have outside of our structured education. And, you know, actually, I'm, I'm, I'm very, very keen on the idea of reshaping how we work together and why we work together. I believe that our workplaces are incredibly toxic because it's not just the underappreciated and, and underrepresented that suffer in our workplaces. So many people love their jobs and hate their workplace. They hate their boss. They hate their team. They hate the system that they function in, and it shouldn't be that way, right? We, why, why aren't we creating uh, work environments where we're expecting for people to be invited to self-actualize, where we're nurturing the best of the human spirit and we're providing our our employees and providing our teams with the skills and tools required to really function together well across differences. These things should be normal. We shouldn't be leaving that to chance or just, you know, relying on whatever home training each individual got in order for people to be respected and treated well. It's not rocket science. When you, when you open up the minds and hearts of good people to, so that they can really understand, it's incredible what's possible because we do have incredible grace for our family members. Like, yeah, our family members drive us crazy sometimes. But when we're talking about, you know, your sister, your cousin, your best friend, and, you know, and their, their failures, their mistakes, when they show up late, we have all kinds of grace and latitude for those folks. And then something happens when we show up in the workplace or we show up in these other environments in which we are expected to collaborate. And suddenly people's personal stories don't matter. We want you to leave your home stuff at home and bring your work stuff to work. And, you know, if you, we don't care that your cat died. And it's like, wait a minute, like, People don't stop being human. Everyone is going through their own personal war every single day. Some of us are winning those battles and some of us aren't. But if we don't open up more space to see each other and to invite each other in, then we're, we're going to continue to commit these abuses and atrocities. And, again, as good people, I feel like it is our responsibility to understand what messages we've internalized and take ownership for how we affect our fellow beings. You are absolutely right. 
we all come in there. We all come into the workplace with our own issues. We always, you know, we, my husband and I own two businesses. Um, they're massage envy. We own two of them, oh. and we have we have a lot of employees. And um, we always tell our employees, leave your problems at the door, come to work with a fresh, you know, attitude and clean. We don't like negative energy here, and um, when you come to this place, we want clean energy and love mm-hmm. and respect and, and those kind of things. Um, I mm-hmm. personally cannot work in an environment where there's hostility and um and aggression, <clears throat> and mm-hmm. where people are coming in and bringing the, their problems and making everyone sort of pay for what they're going through. I don't, you know, I don't really allow that in my businesses. Um, so I, so would, I would, I, ha- I have to push back a little bit there. I have to push back okay. just a touch, okay? And, okay. and hopefully okay, we sure. will be friends, Randy. <laughs> sure, no, no, okay. please tell me, please, so, please. So here's what I would say is that it is impossible. It is physically and spiritually impossible for your employees not to bring their home stuff to work. So there is a difference between um, expecting an energetic vibe, like massage, that's a, that's a hands-on healing service, right? That right. requires a clean energy, and, and your, your motivation is absolutely spot on, and your responsibility right. to create that kind of environment for your customers is, is elevated. It's, a, it's different, right, than it is for, right. you know, a, a, a different kind of business-to-business widgets, et cetera. However, okay. those people are incapable of leaving those things. So I would say if, 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 I, if it were my organization, what I would be looking to do would be to create support structures that acknowledge the intrinsic humanity of those people. Because if one of those people is caring for an elderly parent and, you know, for the first time because something has happened and someone's got dementia, they're not going to be able to put that aside. But if we're able to create a structure where, you know, once a week um, we come together and we actually bring our stuff and we have a conversation or whatever the case may be, create some kind of forum, venue, outlet to, to let that stuff out and then also provide people with the, you know, that kind of skills base, you know, teaching them how to meditate, how to center, because it's, it's shutting it out and saying you can't bring this in. It's impossible. It's coming with them. But if we can teach them, okay, what we understand is you're going, you know, all of us are going through something. Every single one of us is going through something. And I can tell you to leave it out, but it's going to be swimming in your head while you've got your hands on our clients. So what we're going to do is we're going to teach everyone how to walk through these doors, go into a room, and, and we're going to teach you how to meditate, how to clear, how to center that energy, and how to do that between each client because there are energetic mechanisms, and people can do it with whoever they pray to, Buddha, Allah, Jesus, it doesn't matter, right? They can go to whatever, whatever energy they want, but you teach them how to, put, how to press pause on that, how to clear that energy so that they can be fully present for their employees rather than say just don't bring it because it's impossible to not bring it. Right, you know, there's um, there's like um, there's a sub community in my in both of my businesses where the um, mm-hmm. therapists are all very very close and cohesive, and <clears throat> they have a strong support system for each other. Uh, we also, you know, I probably yeah, thank you for calling me on that. I probably said it in a in quite a harsh way. Sometimes I tend to be very uh, <laughs> very blunt. I tend to do that. 
But if I do, someone I is having, so I, see, I see you, sister. I do. I do the same thing. <laughs> yeah. If someone is having um, a personal issue and they come to us or they come to our manager, we are extremely understanding. We give them time off if they need it. Um, I guess what I was trying to say is, don't let it influence your attitude here today. I think that's right. what I'm right. what I'm trying yep. more tr- trying to say. Yes. And mm-hmm. so I said it in. A <laughs> well, no. I, I, I mean, I. I see. I, it's clear what the intention is. I I'm completely right. understand what you're what you're what you're saying, and it's it's it, there are there are degrees of that kind of sentiment, and unfortunately, see, so you are in a in a in a unique place where you know people's emotional well being is your expertise. You know you know this, so your way of communicating and your way of handling that is going to be very different from a manager or a CEO who says that, who's not connected to the, emo- the emotional and spiritual aspects of humanity. Like they right. will literally create a harsh emotional barrier where, you know, the, the fact that you said when people bring their stuff to us, we're very understanding. If you were being, you know, harsh and, and dictatorial about it, no one would bring their stuff to you. So that's evidence that right. you've created an open space. Other people don't do that. Like they ban right. it shut it down, and no one feels safe to be human. Gotcha. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we have um, we have very I, – I want to get off my topic, but, uh, you know, myself. But, um, <laughs> yeah, we have, we have a very high level of retention of our employees. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> so um, compared to other locations, and um, it's because, you know, we do uh, see the human. Uh, Good. The humanity. That's wonderful. Yeah. Anyway. So um, so anyway, <laughs> I wanted to ask you. Um, I wanted to ask you um, if you think that there is less stereotype, stereotypical behavior towards women than there used to be, or do you see that it really has not changed? Oh, so so this is where I think uh, political correctness comes in, and then um, uh, what is it, the uh, pain Olympics, right? So political correctness I find extremely problematic because when we're talking about uh, inclusion and diversity and and privileging diverse voices, then the idea that a person can't speak their mind safely is really troubling. Uh, you know, obviously we don't want people putting each other down and causing harm, but we do want the expression of ideas to be safe and protected. And because we've got so much in the way of that political correctness, I think that the I think that people are saying the right words, but I don't see the action following fast enough. Like we have, you know, evidence if we look at at um, you know at the kind of numbers based um, uh, diagrams that are done around getting more female representation in the highest aspects of leadership from executive leadership to boards at the you know at the at the teeny tiny one percent at a time increments that we're making change you know it'll be a hundred years before we have <laughs> true parity and equity at the highest levels of organizations. And so, you know, there's a lot of tokenization that's happening when it comes to women. So, we'll, you know, we'll get people put in places uh, for the visibility, and then women are not necessarily feeling listened to, heard, included, or valued once they're in those positions. So, you know, I caution people against putting women in positions only to uh, hamstring them and not really allow them to bring the best of that diversity 
to the table. So where, you know, I, I see I see some effort, but I don't see it all as equally authentic as uh, <laughs> as as equally effective because you know, that inclusion, you know, we're still, when it comes to, you know, women in leadership and, and, and minorities in leadership, we're still seeing a lot of, like I said, tokenization and a lot of things that are done for show um, where I think that we really need to focus on that actual inclusion on really making space. And you don't get the benefit of the diversity, right. Of, of what the reason that diversity is so powerful. Like it, you know, we don't do know that it increases our innovation and our, you know, our effectiveness and our relevance with our, you know, stakeholders, our bottom line increases, all these things, but you don't get that if you're tokenizing and not actually allowing people to show up and be who they are. So I think that we have a long way to go and we're, 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 we're talking the right talk (laughs) in a great many instances, but we need to see a lot more female CEOs, you know, chair, chair, chair people of boards. Um, And when our representation in leadership um, across gender, the gender, the full gender spectrum, trans and non, non-conforming and everything else, re- reflect the demographics of our actual society, of our culture, then we'll know that we've gotten closer because the available pool of executives, of leaders, of board members is, you know, is far more diverse than what's actually showing up in these leadership positions. Hmm. Interesting. My daughter is a, a woman in leadership in um, in corporate America. Um, she hasn't gotten all the mm-hmm. way to the top yet, but she's growing very, very quickly. They keep moving her Good. up and moving her up and moving her up, and she's never really felt that. So, um, That's good. And she's worked for major companies. So um, mm-hmm. I don't know if it's the way she presents herself, um, no-nonsense mm-hmm. kind of person, or... Um, Right. You know, I don't really know what it is, but she's been very fortunate, and I've been really happy to see that. And that's not uncommon, is the you know that so there's uh you know there's there's some some really great sort of thought around the idea of professionalism and what that means and what are the subtle cues that are, that are locked in there. So like when I started my corporate career, I had you know what was known as dreadlocks. We call them locks now because there's nothing dreadful about them. Um, <laughs> but there were a great many institutions that banned them, and that's literally the way that uh, curly ethnic hair grows out of the scalp. And so when you're banning someone's body from existing the way it exists, you're you know policing and legislating uh, the human body, and that is a discriminatory practice. Thank goodness for we have something called the Crown Act now, where people in many states are are passing it, and you're, they're not allowed to discriminate um, against natural hair anymore. But the problem is this idea of professionalism, and when you break down the tenets of professionalism, while it seems like a perfectly harm, harmless you know moniker it actually is a placeholder for showing up in the workplace like a white man. And I know that that is going to rub some people the wrong way as soon as I say it. (laughs) However, um, you know, we have all of this historical precedence that shows us that, you know, there's nothing accidental about the way that our society currently exists, the inequities that currently exist, everything that we are currently experiencing in our world, um, you know, was very much done by design with great intention. And so I think that as we are attempting to be more inclusive of the human spirit and more respectful of the different ways that human beings just show up 
on the planet, right? <laughs> this is, right. People are, are different. That is, that is inherent. I think that we have to interrogate some of the status quo. We have to interrogate some of the ways that things have always been and say, wait a minute, when was this created? Why was this created? How was this created? And who was it intended to benefit? Because when you get down to the bottom of a lot of things, you find out that, yeah, these, were, these things were created in a time where we really didn't want for everyone to be e- equally successful. Um, and so, so women who present very, you know, clean and coiffed and together and no nonsense and no emotion, you know, essentially showing up in the way that men have privileged masculine behavior tend to do very well. And look, I, I benefit from that, too. Okay. Right? I identify as gender nonconforming. I have an exceedingly masculine way of, of conducting myself in my business life, and that has absolutely benefited me. Absolutely. Is it right? Not necessarily. Is it true? I do believe that it is. Um, so w- when I talk about gotcha. privileging the human spirit and creating room for people, we need to be thinking about people's hearts, people's souls, uh, people's mm-hmm. well-being. And, and I, I think that the, the, the rise of the divine feminine is absolutely a real thing that is happening in the air. And the more that we're able to start to see that people are more than just the task they perform for us, that they are the energy that they bring and that they are a whole, you know, essential person that is multifaceted, the better we'll all be to each other. Amen. (laughs) I like that. (laughs) What about, um, how do you feel about uh, tattooing? Because, you know, it's not that we're showing up, uh, those who tattoo and really love it and really like to express mm-hmm. themselves that way, um, <clears throat> sometimes that is can send a message to the clientele that we don't want to send. Um, so how do you feel about that? How do you feel about that? this new, well, it's not so new anymore, but this new <clears throat> fad of tattooing? Part of the country you're in. <laughs> I'm in South Florida. So okay. we're exposed. Right. We, we're not covered up here. Right. Okay. So, yeah. So, I mean, that, I think that that's very kind of regional and it definitely, you know, skews more uh, liberal, creative, artistic, et cetera. Um, I feel, you know, to me, I, I, am, I am an artist. I actually am a visual and a performing artist. Uh, my last book that came out was a book of poetry. So oh, wow. I am okay, very much, <laughs> thank you. I'm very much in favor of, um, you know, people being able to adorn their skin uh, the way that they feel like adorning their skin. Uh, There is something incredibly powerful in the, the workplaces that have uh, embraced that, you know, the, the, the piercing and the tattooing and that individual expression, uh, because what it does is it communicates that you as an employer are welcoming of people as they are. Now, my personal limitations on tattoos, because I, you know, I, I own some companies as well, is, you know, as long as the imagery itself is uh, basically PG, it's okay. So if it's not uh, imagery that, you know, if you've got, if you've just got naked people on you, for instance, if you can't be <laughs> naked at work, then having exposed naked people on your arms 
might be a little bit over the top. You know, having a nose piercing, uh, you know, a labret, you know, one or two things is very different from there's more metal on your face than skin. So I would say, you know, depending on what your industry is and where you are geographically located, because like in California, like nobody cares depending on where you are, right? It's just very different. New York, really super common. Um, so I just think that there are degrees. So, so I'm not going to discriminate against a neck tattoo. Um, once upon a time, that would have been, you know, oh, my gosh, so crazy. But I would say that as long as the imagery itself is, is suitable for work, that I think that it's totally fine. And, again, what you do when you do that is you expand your connection to the actual real society. Like I live in Richmond, Virginia. Richmond, Virginia is the third most tattooed city in the country as really? measured by the num- mm-hmm, as measured by the number of tattoo parlors per capita. Um, we have an extremely high rate of, of tattooed people. And I, don't, I love seeing them out in the world because what it says is this employer did not discriminate against this person because of their tattoos. And we know that there was a time that people would have now. Do I want to see, you know, sorry to be crass, but do I want to see a vagina on someone's arm? Not necessarily, <laughs> you know, if I'm, if I'm eating my dinner, okay? <laughs> so I would say that it, it is probably, you know, appropriate to ask for people to cover them if they are, um, you know, if they're not suitable for work or not suitable for, you know, a third grader. Right. So ov- <laughs> there's, a level of decor- there's a level of decorum uh, yes. that... Yes. Overly violent, yes. overly sexual, uh, you know, explicative, right. things like that. Right. Got you, got you, got you. Okay. So um, as we're coming to the end, I just wanted to give you the um, opportunity to share um, anything that maybe we didn't cover that you think is important. Uh, no, my, my biggest takeaway for people is to have grace for yourselves and have grace for others. So, if you are, you know, if you identify as a good person, then, you, you know, don't, don't feel bad about bristling to some of the things that I said, right? You know, like I, I like to call it the delusion of white supremacy because words have power and whiteness was never supreme, but we were all bamboozled into thinking it was. And so, you know, when I say things like that or I talk about privilege, I didn't say white privilege. I said privilege, period. I have privilege. If you find yourself bristling to stuff like that, don't don't feel bad. It doesn't mean that you're a bad person. But I do believe that if you want to be a better person tomorrow than you are today, that we do have a responsibility to take some of this stuff seriously because it does affect how we treat people. Even if we think it doesn't, the impact that our, that our good intentions have on other people are something that is disconnected from our actual intent. So have grace for yourself as you're learning. When people tell you that, that they've been offended, don't go into, oh, my God, my intentions were so good, you're just a dumb person for thinking that way. No, be grateful that you've been, that someone was vulnerable enough to share with you an area where you're a little bit exposed. The challenge with this kind of work is I wish I could write one book and then you could read it and then you'd be done with this work. But it's, it's not an appendectomy, right? It's not like oh, we can cut the bad stuff out and then you're all good. No, it's more like hygiene, Right. So if you, don't, if you don't wash your stinky booty and brush your teeth every day, you're going to smell foul, okay? That's how it works with this kind of interpersonal work, with racism, sexism, homophobia. You have to keep doing the work. It's work that never stops, but you're going to not be so stinky when you get around other humans if you're willing to do that work. <laughs> That's funny. <laughs> 
That's so well said. Thank you. Thank you for sharing that. Um, <clears throat> so your book, um, you, wrote, you wrote it with Michael Barron. It's called Subtle Acts of Exclusion, How to Understand, Identify, and Stop Microaggressions. So we have really, really educated my listeners today about something I really don't think they've ever thought about. So I want to thank you for that. And um, do you have a website, and um, where can we get your book? Yeah, so my uh, company website is uh, tmiconsultinginc.com, so tmiconsultinginc.com. To learn more about the book, you can go to subtleactsofexclusion.com, or you can just look up my name or the book on uh, Amazon. It's available everywhere books are sold. Even your local bookseller can order it for you. Uh, if you're if you're not if you don't want to go with the big the big outlets, so all of my books are available everywhere that books are sold, and uh, follow me on all social media. My name is Tiffany Jana J A N A. I'm Tiffany Jana on all social media, and I have a YouTube channel as well. Oh, great! Okay, and you talk about this this stuff this, the microaggressions. Yeah, my- okay. So my you, my YouTube channel is more you, you see how I'm kind of preachy. <laughs> my YouTube channel has a a, a docu series called Life with Doc Jana um, that just kind of follows me through this 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 life of sharing these messages across the world. And then as we've been in uh, in quarantine, I have just shared um, just kind of perspectives on how to manage through all of this through this inclusive lens. Because what we've seen with COVID nineteen is that. Uh, it, it's not an equalizer. It doesn't hit all populations in the same way. What's happening is that our failure to really take care of each other as humans is being laid bare. So the disparities that exist in the world right around the stuff that I work on professionally um, is, is, is much more exposed now than it's ever been. Okay. So you're putting out a lot of information. I am indeed. That's good. We need it. We need it. And we're and we're definitely here to receive it. You know, that's one thing that this epidemic has done is it's made us all have to be quiet. We have to we have to yeah. go within. We have to um think about things we may never have thought about before when we're just so busy, you know, yeah, going my, through my, life. My and beautiful- just- my beautiful Catholic mama said that God put us in timeout because, you know, he, he didn't like the way that we were acting and treating uh-huh. her and each other and said, go to your room and think about what you've done. Right. Think about it. It's so true. I mean, that's, that's, that's funny, but it's true. We have to think about it. it. So, um, so, so I thank you so much. This was fun. I really enjoyed it. Uh, thank you so much for having me. It is my pleasure. Say hi to... Dr. Michael Barron for us um, and tell him we missed us we missed him <laughs> We missed him. <laughs> you were awesome Tiffany thank you so much and enjoy your day um, whatever that brings awesome thank you so much have a great one you too bye 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 so we are out of time but if you have any comments or questions about today's show you can email me at loveyourlife at randyfine.com Stay well, and may joy and serenity always be yours. Goodbye. We hope you enjoyed today's show. Visit randyfine.com, R-A-N-D-I-F-I-N-E.com, and be sure to sign up to receive updates on the latest blog posts, events, and upcoming shows. Thank you for listening.